We are covering a couple of recent tech stories. Files leaked from Uber show that the ride-hailing company wooed prominent political leaders and used stealth technology in its push for global expansion. Those are some of the tactics revealed in what's now become an international investigation into thousands of emails and text messages and memos and other records. Also, Elon Musk. He's trying to back out of his deal to buy Twitter, leaving the social network out to dry. So joining us now to talk about both of these stories is Joe Men. He is a Washington Post tech reporter specializing in hacking, privacy, and surveillance. Welcome to Reset, Joe. Hi, thanks for having me. First, how did this Uber investigation begin? Like, who initially got a hold of the documents? Well, the timing on your question is, is, is excellent because the source has just uh, outed himself uh, oh, wow. uh, about an hour about an hour ago. But uh, he had initially um, uh, given all these documents to The Guardian, uh, the, the British-based newspaper, uh, England-based newspaper, and they shared it with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, uh, which in turn offered uh, other newspapers a uh, chance to dig in. Um, and some 40 uh, media organizations, including the Washington Post, have participated over several months in, in analyzing these documents, more than 100,000 documents. Who's the source? Uh, so it is a um, it is a uh, a lobbyist um, a, a lobbyist. He was a former top lobbyist in Europe uh, for Uber. His name is Mark McGann, mm-hmm. um, and um, he he had a dispute with Uber over some issues. Uh, and, but he is not he's not pure as the driven snow either. He is he is saying that uh, he participated in this. He was the direct contact with Macron in France who is one of the people that, that appears uh, pretty prominently in these documents. He was involved in a lot of the stuff, and he now has regrets. Wow. Well, let's talk about the the documents that he did leak. As you mentioned, more than 120,000 confidential documents were leaked to The Guardian. Remind us of the timeline. How far back does the information go? Uh, so... 2013 to 2017 is is the core of it. Of course, that you know there are people discussing things that have happened previously. You know, in the, in you know, in that time period. Um, but but that that's the core of it. So one of Uber's Uber has basically responded by saying that they're not going to defend some of the prior conduct. But it's you know, it's a new era. They have a new CEO. They're doing things differently now. That is that is their basic. Uh, response to mm. to these files. Mm. Uh, let's uh, let's talk more about the files and records shown. Uh, tell us about what happened in Uber's Amsterdam offices. So Amsterdam was the European headquarters, and it was um, it was in big trouble, as it was in in many in many places with the local laws. I mean, the general state of affairs uh, in Europe and many other countries is that the taxi industry is heavily regulated. Um, it can be extremely detailed about how many hours people can work, what colors the cars have to be, all that sort of thing. And Uber just sort of came in guns blazing and decided to, you know, upend the system, uh, which you know had a had a had a lot of appeal to regular people. I mean, honestly, mm-hmm. but um, they knew some of, some of the more alarming emails say things like, "Well, sometimes you know we're just effing illegal." Uh, and you know, so it's not your fault if things don't work out. So there was mm-hmm. there was a lot of open internal discussion about how how fast and loose they're playing with the laws. Yeah. So it was, so Amsterdam got raided repeatedly, and in one case, the the legal director uh, for Europe um, was actually charged with obstruction of justice, and he wound up 
settling the case. It's one of the things that came out in, in these in these um, communications wow. that wasn't previously known. Yeah. There are a couple of other people in Paris, uh, top executives, that were also charged uh, criminally. Uh, and Uber just seemed to take it as, as, as par for the course. Yeah, executives really seemed as though... Um... They knew they were breaking the law and, and, you know, in the documents, even calling themselves pirates at one point. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, but it's much more than that. I mean, the, the, this, there are multiple stories here. The stories are still rolling out. Uh, there are different aspects to this. But I think the big picture is something like Uber was losing a lot of money. Uh, it needed to show growth in order to raise money at higher valuations and eventually go public. So growth was super important, and they were willing to get that in part by, in some cases, misleading drivers about how good a living they could make driving Ubers, mm-hmm. um, in in part by leveraging the anger of the entrenched you know, taxi drivers, you know, who are sometimes protesting violently against their drivers. There's a series of stories about how they use that to win public favor and put pressure on politicians, like, look, these poor Uber drivers are getting assaulted, uh, you have to make sure that we're legal now. And then there's like the political lobbying thing, where they turned out to have extremely close connections with European leaders, including Macron uh, and EU leadership and mm. others in the United States. I mean, they were hiring, they hired David Plouffe, who was campaign manager for Barack Obama. Uh, there, was, there was all that sort of thing. So when they got into trouble, authorities, police come into the offices one of the one of the stories I worked on for a long time is about the technology they they use to defeat those legitimate probes. Yeah, there was something called they called a kill switch, which um, knocked all the computers in the office um, immediately off of the corporate network. So they would come in, the authorities would come in looking for certain documents, and the computers would be you know essentially paperweights. They couldn't get anything useful back. Um, now these are not unheard of. Uh, you know, it's the same same sort of technology you use in case. An employee loses a laptop in a cab or um, or gets fired and you want to cut off their access immediately. Mm-hmm. But they would do it not only when somebody was pounding at the door. In some cases, they did it when the authorities were already inside the office and were being deliberately stalled by some of the employees. They'd be put into a conference Goodness. room, kept away from the machines, and they'd just wait until we get a spokesperson here to deal with you. And in the back, you know, behind the scenes, they're cutting off all the access so the authorities can't get what they want. Interesting. Uh, when we talked a moment ago about the uh, the Amsterdam uh, situation, that was back in 2015. What do you know about what was going on with Uber's valuation at that point? So I can't tell you precisely what they were worth at precisely, you know, which during which raid. But we're talking around fifty billion dollars. They were raising money at around with fifty a billion dollars, yeah. which made it not the most. Uh, valuable private company in the world that would be Saudi Aramco at the time, but the most valuable startup in the world. Can you explain what's the Dawn Raid Manual? Ah, the Dawn Man- Raid Manual is this document uh, that run- ran to thousands of words with 66 bullet points. And it was an instruction uh, manual given out internally and marked confidential what to do when the cops show up first thing in the morning. Uh, with surprise. And there, there's nothing illegal on its face about those instructions, but there's some, there's definitely some things that raise eyebrows, including put all regulators in a room um, where they don't have access to any files um, uh, and, uh, and you know, call, call San Francisco immediately. And so one former employee, former executive told me that 
the the plan was basically to stall the regulators and then even if it's two in the morning, get a hold of somebody in San Francisco to cut off all the network access. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and we are talking with tech reporter Joe Men about the Washington Post's international investigation into Uber's global expansion and the company's use of stealth technology to interfere with government raids. Uh, Joe, you talked about um, Uber drivers uh, a bit earlier. Through all of this, how were riders affected? Well, riders generally loved Uber, uh, and and some of them found out about uh, about it as an option from coverage of the violence. Uh, So even what looked like bad news was helpful to Uber. It was like a marketing uh, marketing technique, and, and that was part of the leveraging it. But in general, the rides were cheaper, were often cheaper uh, and more convenient, but they were cheaper because it was all heavily subsidized. And so, you know, it's one of those crazy Silicon Valley startup stories where, you know, you, you lose a ton of money uh, up front, um, but you attract lots of people, and then you figure out how to make money later. Um, or you just sell all your stock and leave. So both of those things happen, right? So Amazon, many people mocked Amazon because it was losing so much money. And now it's one of the most valuable companies in the world, and it is very much possible. So yeah. there, is a, there is a sound strategy to growing as fast as you can. But in this case, it seemed it was based on um, not just uh, a, a, an unsustainable business model, but all this this brass knuckle, not bare knuckle, but brass knuckle sort of tactics. Mm -hmm. Talk more about Uber's official response since the release of these documents. What exactly are they saying? So they they point out that the CEO at the time for all these documents was Travis Kalanick, and he's gone. Uh, He was forced out in a uh, out of the CEO job in 2017 and then forced out of of being on the board uh, where he still had some allies to the end in 2019. So uh, personnel change for sure. Uh, It's also true that there are um, they have pulled out of some of the countries where they were um, where they were really pushing pushing their luck, either through lobbying or through this covert technology um, or through um, drivers getting uh, brought in who wound up facing a lot of violence and not very much money. Uh, They are pulling out of Russia now. They're basically done in China. Um, and in other countries, they are cooperating with regulators. There are some markets where you can use your Uber app to get a regulated cap. So it is a very different company than it was. Well, before we let you go, Joe, what's going on with Elon Musk? Why is he backing out of the deal to, to buy Twitter? Well, uh, the legal paperwork uh, says he's backing out of the deal because uh Twitter isn't conforming to the terms of their binding agreement and is not turning over enough information about how they estimate the number of fake accounts on their network. That's the official reason. Mm -hmm. Musk says it's way more than the 5% of uh, monetizable daily average users that Twitter says um, are are fake accounts. but that's not what's in the actual agreement. Uh, the agreement doesn't really talk about bots and the number of bots. So he's going a bit far afield because unless he comes up with something really interesting, he's still on the hook to go through the deal. When he signed the $44 billion takeover agreement, he basically uh, forswore due diligence. Uh, it's like buying a you know, house in a hot 
housing market right. when you agree to buy it as as is. Um, so legal experts are saying he's going to have a hard time actually getting out of this. On the other hand, Twitter doesn't want to spend a year in Chancery Court in Delaware uh, trying to make him buy something he doesn't want to buy. So mm. certainly a likely out- outcome is he gets a lower price to buy it or he pays a penalty less than $44 billion to walk away. Yeah, what position does this leave Twitter in now? Not a happy one at all. Uh, Some people told us it's it's the worst of both worlds. Um, They got somebody who doesn't want to buy them, but from a shareholder financial perspective, the best answer is still to be bought by that guy. Mm -hmm. So you you, you kind of have a split between what the employees of Twitter and the users of Twitter might be rooting for and what the shareholders want. And it's the shareholders and the board that are going to ultimately decide what to do, or at least try mm-hmm. to force must to do what they want to do. So help us understand this bit. The Twitter board plans to pursue legal action. That's according to a statement that the board chairman tweeted back on Friday. Is that something that Elon Musk needs to worry about, Joe, or is it something that yeah. he can just pay his way out of? Well, um, he absolutely has to worry about it because even for him, forty-four billion dollars is is not is not chicken feed. Yeah. Uh, he is the richest man in the world. He can he can survive it. But a lot of that that money is tied up. Pretty much all of his money is tied up in Tesla stock, and Tesla stock went down as soon as he announced the deal and hasn't hasn't gone back to where it was. So he's got to make he's got to worry more about the value of Tesla shares than anything else. In theory, again, in this suit that's widely expected to be filed in Chancery Court in Delaware, on its surface, Twitter can make him pay the $44 billion he promised to pay. One of the few ways out is if um, is if fi- his financing falls apart. And so it gets, sort of, it gets very complicated and interesting where tactically it would be must interest if one of the banks he had previously lined up to say, yes, we're financing, you know, with his shares in Tesla's collateral, we're, we're financing this takeover offer. Yeah. If they now say, if one of them now says, well, actually, Tesla shares are down so much and there's so much uncertainty that we can't, we no longer can promise uh, to back this takeover. And then and then Musk actually has a clean out. How might this affect Twitter users at the end of the day and investors and, well, and stockholders? Well, from a user perspective, uh, you might see more brain drain. There's been turnover at the top. People are not happy inside Twitter about any of this, even though some of those who were rooting for Musk to take it over are now saying this is a disaster now that Musk is saying, you know, is bad-mouthing the company and its employees. So there's a big turnover there, which is not going to be great for service. Um, huge, huge distraction, obviously, for the top leadership. They're, on the other hand, they are rolling out upgrades and newer features and things like that, despite all of this, under the, the new CEO since Dorsey quit. Um, they are rolling out some features uh, that we were sort of held up by kind of paralysis at the top. So interesting. Uh, it'll be it'll be chaos, but there may be some incremental improvements. And then all bets are off, depending on who owns the company a year from now. I can't wait to see what happens next. Joe Men is a tech reporter at The Washington Post. You can find the latest on Twitter's possible acquisition and more on the Uber Files investigation at WashingtonPost.com. Thanks for joining us, Joe. Thanks, Sasha. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We've got more for you on the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.